0: Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. This is Kurt Repinchek, your host at National Parks
1: Traveler. Quite a find at Grand Canyon National Park was announced last week. The discovery of fossilized animal tracks dating back 313 million years. And scores of hikers along the Bright Angel Trail had walked right past the slab of sandstone holding the tracks without noticing them. At Crater Lake National Park, staff had to work harder to educate some of their visitors this summer so they wouldn't use the woods as a bathroom, and so they wouldn't take paddleboards down to the lake. At Death Valley National Park, the temperature at Furnace Creek rose to an incredible 130 degrees Fahrenheit as a heat wave embraced the west. You can read those and other stories about national parks and protected areas at nationalparkstraveler.org. In this week's show, we're focusing on the current coronavirus pandemic, as well as the 1918 flu pandemic, and how those diseases impacted national park visitation. After discussing those two pandemics with Professor Terrence Young from California State Polytech, we visit with contributing writer Rita Beamish, who tried to escape the current pandemic by taking to the John Muir Trail for nine days. She found that many other hikers were being careful by keeping their distance and wearing face masks when necessary, while others were being a bit more cavalier. We currently are in the midst of the worst global pandemic in more than a century. The coronavirus pandemic has upended our lives from how we shop, whether we can go out to dinner or the movies, and even how we visit national parks. There was another pandemic back in 1918 when flu circled the globe and killed millions. That pandemic also affected how people led their daily lives, including how they visited national parks. Terrence Young, a Professor Emeritus of Geography at California State Polytechnic University, is well familiar with the outdoors and how we use them. He's the author of Heading Out, A History of American Camping. Recently, Professor Young took a look at how Americans reacted both to the 1918 pandemic and the current one when it comes to visiting national parks and public lands. Professor Young joins us today to discuss his findings. Welcome to The Traveler, Professor.
2: Oh, thank you, Kurt. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: So uh, your book on camping and the history of camping really fascinated me, and I really enjoyed um, learning how we got into the camping mode over the, the past century or so. What prompted you to take a look at um, the, the pandemics and how people traveled both during the flu pandemic of 1918 and the current coronavirus pandemic?
2: Uh, well, there's sort of two things. Is one, the rising commentary in the press about uh, from various parks saying, oh, well, either they were seeing decreases or things like uh, reports that recreational vehicles were being rented more, things like this, I thought were, uh, well, that's interesting. And then also there's long been a history uh, Mm -hmm. of, or historians have discussed how in 1918, uh, visits to the national parks decreased and which was counter to what had been going on for the years prior the numbers had been going up and up and up and then in 18 they stopped and the common explanation was world war one right it was a uh, uh, redirection of resources uh, uh lots of people going uh, into the military millions and that that's why the numbers went down and i just was being a uh, something of a skeptic, I was curious, you know, it's like, is that all there was? It's just the war? Well, there's a pandemic. And I wondered if it had any effect. So I started digging through this, you know, the records. And mm-hmm. uh, yes, I do think it, it's also part of the story.
1: Yeah. Now, I'm curious, back in, in 1918, would the wealthy have seen the parks as an escape from the pandemic?
2: Probably. Uh, at first, I would say. The era of between say 1916, 17 and about 1925 is a big transition point in the history of the national parks in terms of visitation. Prior to that, say 1915 and earlier, the parks were pretty much an exclusively uh, a place for the wealthy or at least the upper middle class. Mm -hmm. It took a lot, it took a long time to get to them. We have to remember most of the parks are in the West you know, Yosemite, Yellowstone, Glacier, but most of the people in the United States are in the East, right? They're in New York along the Northern seaboard and stuff like that, North Atlantic seaboard. So getting there was uh, expensive, time consuming, and not really uh, something that just kind of average middle-class and certainly working class people couldn't do. But in this era, uh, what happens is the car becomes two things, cheap, (laughs) and there's lots of used ones, which we should never forget. Henry Ford may have produced lots of cars inexpensively, but he indirectly produced lots of uh, used vehicles. (laughs) And those used vehicles go for even less. And this is the beginning of automobile credit. So you can finally, you can start to buy cars on credit. Well, the number of cars just explodes in the United States. And for the first time, We have people who are of, you know, just average means or even, you know, uh, stretching to make it, showing up in the national parks. But they're not taking the trains. They're mostly taking cars. And that's how they're getting there. So it's a big shift. But so I can see at first, at least the wealthy would have seen themselves as escaping to some degree to go to the national parks. Uh, The experience may have been a little more mixed when they got there at least to their
3: expectations.
1: Yeah, yeah. You mentioned trains. Um, as we're well aware, air travel today has fallen off precipitously due to COVID-19. Um, of course, back in 1918, air travel wasn't that widespread, let alone affordable. And, and most people who traveled, traveled by train or, or took their own cars. Um, was train travel greatly affected um, by the flu pandemic?
2: Tremendously, just Tremendously. Trains were the general way of getting around still long distance. Uh, You might drive your car, uh, if you had one, you might drive your car 20, 30, 40 miles and stuff. But if you wanted to go long distance, uh, people generally would take the trains. This is to some degree why taking a car to Yellowstone, if you lived in San Francisco, was a tremendous adventure uh, because most people never went that far. So the trains were full lots of people and uh the disease started to spread through them in fact the state of california public health officials in the state of california uh cited the trains as a major source of the introduction of the pandemic throughout the state of california wow they point you know so people people quickly caught on to this just like and asked themselves just like they do today about airplanes you know do i really want to be on a train and the answer simply was no and uh, train travel dropped dramatically as well.
1: Yeah. And, of course, um, it would take a train in those days to, to reach some of the more isolated parks, like here, Yellowstone or Grand Canyon or whatnot. And yet, um, you found that um, parks nearer to large population centers um, saw increases in visitation.
2: I think Yes, I think what, what happened was something analogous to what's happening today, which is... Um, the train, the trains carried a lot of visitors, as you said, to the distant national park. No one's more isolated national parks. And uh, those numbers just collapsed. Uh, Yellowstone, just as an example, went from 13,000 visitors arriving in 1917 on the train to 3,000 visitors arriving in 1918. So a quarter of the, the previous year's numbers. Automobiles while they were carrying a greater number of people than they had been still people were uh, like i was just saying it's a it was a tremendous adventure and challenging to drive say a thousand miles to a park so the distant parks yellowstone glacier uh they they got fewer visitors than they had previously been getting in terms of automobiles so 1917 1918 there's a decrease in automobile visits to the distant parks, the ones that are more isolated. But the ones that are close to cities, to big urban centers, Mount Rainier, Sequoia, Yosemite, their visitation went up and primarily on cars. So people like today, I think there's a a lot of people who are taking up camping in RVs more so than in tents, say, uh, for the first time, but they're not driving from uh, whatever, New Haven, Connecticut to Rocky Mountain National Park. You know, they're driving to say Shenandoah or, you know, or someplace near, relatively nearby uh, and, as their first adventures. And I think that's what we see. You're looking at a lot of novices who are, who are you know, say, okay, well, well, we can't take the train. What could we do? And in, they try a car and off they go, you know, uh, to Yosemite or wherever.
1: Must have been fascinating to to see those types of increases.
2: Yeah, yeah, and and I expect there they'll continue at least all through this year, and perhaps you know as long as the pandemic uh, continues, I expect to see a, a steady climb in the number of recreational vehicle campers and novice campers. This is, I mean, they can't travel long, or they won't travel long distance. They could want it, uh, they won't travel long distance in uh, public vehicles. But they feel confident. To, well, come on, we can rent a small RV, you know, motorhome, and uh, we'll drive to Grand Canyon. Yeah, and we're actually seeing that.
1: You noted that um, while park travel collapsed in 1918, um, that it rebounded um, quite significantly, I believe, in 1919. And, and of course, part of that was the end of the World War, uh, World War One, along with uh, the end of the pandemic. Under the current coronavirus pandemic, of course, we saw park travel come virtually to a halt earlier this year as parks shut down due to the coronavirus pandemic. Um, But since late spring, parks have been reopening and the crowds have been coming back uh, strongly in some instances. Talking with a superintendent recently, he told me that there seems to be a new type of park visitor. Uh, one who usually spent their free time going to water parks or maybe Disneyland or Disney World or some other amusement park and to the movies. And with those um, options shut down, these people are turning to national parks and other public lands for an escape from being homebound. Would you expect that these crowds will lead to a significant increase in overall park travelers in the in the years to come, or is this a, a one-off, so to speak?
2: No, I... I... I think there's a lot of people who were previously uh, national park uh, campers, recreationists of all sorts, who are gonna come back uh, after uh, the pandemic goes away, or whatever, however we handle it. But I also think they're going to be an additional new group of people, like you just mentioned. All of these people who previously didn't see camping or hiking in the national parks or recreating in other ways, as something they just automatically thought about. I don't think there's any way to, to sort of convey how intimidating camping could seem to somebody who's never camped. The whole idea of, I have to take all this stuff, I have to set it up. There's nothing, you know, nothing prepared. You know, I, 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 this has long been uh, run through the history of camping right from the beginning, because most campers are urban people. They're not rural people. They don't know how to survive. And that was perhaps in some ways even truer in the in 19th century because people couldn't go very far. And so if you lived in uh, a city, you lived in it. You didn't, this idea of going out to the edges of it and stuff is not that easy or, uh, to do. So those people didn't know how to camp. And I think that's true today. There's just all sorts of people. I, I And I think the number of, uh, if you go just google how to camp you know there's just thousands of uh sites and there's i have right behind me on the shelf bookshelves here in my office i have hundreds of how to camp books that have been written since the 1870s and so you're this is it's not something that's obvious and we're getting a whole new group of people who the pandemic has offered them an opportunity or pushed them to Camp for the first time, and I think they're going to discover that they like it, just like they did in during the pandemic at the beginning of the 20th century. It's, it fits Americans' ideas about the wild and its role in our society and culture and that sort of thing, but they just haven't gone before, and they're going now. And so I would say after this is over, we're going to see a tremendous surge in people going to the national parks. Interesting.
1: We're talking today with Terrence Young, uh, Professor Emeritus of Geography at California State Polytech, uh, about how people traveled to national parks back during the flu pandemic of 1918, as well as during the current coronavirus pandemic. We're gonna take a short break and we'll be right back.
0: Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation. By a NationalParksTraveler.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences that it offers endure for generations to come. You can show your appreciation at BRPFoundation.org. Acadia National Park is one of the ten most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org
1: We're back now with uh, Terrence Young, Professor Emeritus of Geography at California State Polytech University, talking about national park travel and visitation during the pandemic of 1918 and the current coronavirus pandemic um, that's sweeping the country. Professor, your research also found that there was quite a bit of environmental damage to park lands following the 1918 pandemic. Uh, can, Can you point to some specific examples?
2: yes uh in uh, just for instance uh, yosemite national park was on the verge in early 1920s was on the verge of being sued by the state of california for um um whatever sewage <laughs> the parks the park did not have an adequate sewage treatment system and a uh, uh, a great deal of Pollution of various sorts, uh, surface runoff, uh, human waste, uh, trash, these sorts of things were getting into the Merced River, which runs through Yosemite Valley. And then the river runs down into uh, the San Joaquin Valley and is a source of drinking water for people up below. The state had asked the federal government repeatedly, and the National Park Service in particular, repeatedly to do something. And uh, they were on the verge of basically just saying, okay, if, if you won't listen to, discuss, if you won't discuss it with us and do something, we'll just have to sue you. And so they were setting up to do it and that finally seems to have prompted the Park Service and the Congress to fund, provide the funding for a sewage system. And so that was their first sewage system appears during the 1920s. But this is, this is just an example. This is widespread. We talked today about a maintenance backlog in the national parks. There's also uh, all sorts of other things that are not, the maintenance backlog refers to say roads, buildings, uh, museums, uh, may need to do painting, fix toilets, whatever, those sort of things. This does not generally refer to any environmental restoration that may be needed as a result of excessive use, uh, tourists going off the paths w- you know wiping out grasslands this sort of thing well this was this was a, kind of a new story in uh, in the 1920s following the end of the pandemic and this surge of campers and other visitors that came at that time and uh it 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 was widespread common and expensive to uh to fix
1: and they were going off and and, and trampling uh um... The parkland, so to speak?
2: Oh, everywhere. <laughs> there are pictures uh, from, say, uh, uh, this is, I looked at Yosemite quite a bit in my, when I was writing my book. There are pictures of people in their cars camping in Stoneman Meadow uh, in Yosemite. Uh, I mean, and they're just all over the place. And you can see the paths have been cut through the grass and all this. Today, you can't even walk in the meadow, right? You have to go on a boardwalk. Right. because it's, it's very sensitive uh, land, it's a wetland. And uh, just it was t- oh, t- extremely damaged by large numbers of visitors and that restoration is still undergoing. Or same thing in Sequoia, uh, where they had to ultimately removed campgrounds. They started to remove those campgrounds in the 1920s and it took them a century to get them out, uh, and they were removed not because somebody didn't like people being there or something in some aesthetic sense. No, they were killing the trees. You know, the you can't uh, you can't just put campers anywhere and everywhere. There, is, I mean, if it was one or two people, it wouldn't be a problem. But well, we're talking millions, so. It's an amazing
1: story, and and history repeats itself um, to certain degrees. Um, for instance, um, during the current pandemic. Um We've seen some instances where a woman trespassed into Yellowstone National Park earlier this year when uh, the park was closed because of the pandemic, and I guess she got out to the Old Faithful area somehow and was backing up to take a picture of one of the features and and fell into a a thermal pool and didn't kill her, but um, got um, severely burned. Um, Other instances of of people... tearing out hand sanitizer dispensers in restrooms so they could get to the hand sanitizer and take it with them or take the toilet paper with them. Earlier this summer in Grand Teton National Park, there was uh, an instance where uh, somebody decided to hold a dirt bike uh, rally of sorts in a meadow that was being restored to great expense, and um, I'm not sure we're going to see exactly how much environmental damage has been done, and until the months have passed, I know um, talking to the superintendent at Crater Lake National Park the other day, getting back to this new type of visitor um, and not exactly knowing how to negotiate parks or whatnot. You know, they would hike down the the Cleatwood Trail, um, roughly a mile down from the the rim to Crater Lake itself and um, there were no restroom facilities there. So what would they do? Well, they just take their paper or whatnot and, and go down along the shoreline and squat behind a rock or something like that. And so we had you know, the human waste problem, which unfortunately um, they've been able to correct that. But um, I'm, I'm curious um, how much other examples of environmental damage we might see creep up after this pandemic, um, in part because of Folks wanted to go someplace and uh, just decided to go there. And the parks, of course, are short staffed because they haven't been able to house as many seasonal employees. And so there simply aren't enough rangers to go around to keep an eye on everybody or to answer questions.
2: I'm sure yeah, there were similar stories about what happened in Joshua Tree here in Southern California. Uh, and, and but I'm also talking about not just the immediate uh, environmental or, or whatever infrastructural problems that might occur during this pandemic, which could be sizable, like riding you know ATVs in a meadow, uh, but also the longer term uh, problems that uh, are going to if if not adequately funded, when the pandemic ends. If, as I suspect, there's going to be a a notable increase in the number of visitors, which is not going to be just for one season, but I think will be indefinite because the people who are learning to camp now, they're not going to give it up. They're going to enjoy it as their ancestors have. But I'm concerned about the long-term kind of consequences of having an extra 10% or 15% Uh, visitors showing up and not recognizing that the the park service is going to need money to be able to mitigate the damage that they're doing as it coming just in those numbers. And I'm also concerned about the long-term damage that may already have been there and is not being treated. I mean, uh, the parks are a place that are both loved and uh, are also a place that in terms of funding have been treated as a kind of an Externalization of any problems. It's like, look, if we don't have to, if it's not a road that needs to be paved, we don't necessarily have to fund that sort of repair. When in fact, the the shrubbery and uh, trees and whatever just off that road are dying because the road uh, runoff from the roads is killing them. This, all of this, it, it's it's uh, the damage can be quite extensive and hard to see, especially if you don't know that this could look a lot better. These are places like I've seen pictures before and after of a giant forest in Sequoia. And it is so much nicer now than it once was. But it took a long, long time and a lot of effort and serious funding to restore it and make it look like it did.
1: You know, I think um, come November and and going into December, uh, some of these funding issues are really going to come to light and, and by that I mean, you know, yes, we've just seen uh, the Great American Outdoors Act pass, which specifically sets aside $6.5 billion for the Park Service to address the maintenance backlog. And then you've got the, the full funding of the Land and Water Conservation Act, which will also provide some additional funds. But what hasn't yet been calculated accurately is how much money has the Park Service lost by being closed and not collecting entrance fees. And by concession operations being um, scaled back dramatically, and so you're not going to see the the amount of concession fees paid to the park service as it has been in the past. And so I've talked to some superintendents, and, and they say, "Well, we'll we'll let you know in November how bad or how good things are." And so I think that's going to be a um, another issue to deal with, not only with increased visitation, but how much in the hole might these parks be because of those those issues there, and so Congress very well might be uh, approached to like, "Hey, we need more money for park operations," and they might just say, "Well, we just you know gave you six and a half billion dollars so it's it's going to be a an interesting uh, congressional session in twenty twenty one You noted that um, Congress did increase funding for the parks in the 1920s, but it wasn't quite enough to to deal with the the issues that uh, the park Service faced.
2: <laughs> I think it's a, a lesson to pay attention to the pandemic ended in 1919 park visitation over the next decade basically doubled right they had a 100 a percent or excuse me quadrupled. they had a 200 percent increase in number of visitors uh by the end of the 1920s congress quadrupled or whatever, octupled or something, 400% increase in budgeting for uh, the parks. At the same time, they were undergoing, the parks were undergoing and suffering the sort of damage I was just telling you about. They needed money to put in a sewer system. They needed money to uh, fix uh, areas that had been denuded of vegetation uh, by campers because they didn't have campgrounds at that time this the the fact that the congress authorized twice as much and increased funding as the number of visitors and they still underwent tremendous uh, environmental problems suggests to me that we're going we have the potential for having a similar situation over the next decade and i looked back i was curious and looked back and the congressional research uh, office indicates that Adjusted for inflation, the last decade of funding to the National Park Service has had only a 4.4% increase, as opposed to a four or double the amount that uh, vis- uh, in the 1920s above visitation. That was inadequate to handle the difficulties that the Park Service faced. Mm-hmm. If Congress today thinks it's going to handle the problem of surging visitors, by giving the Park Service 7% more or something like that, I think they're just simply uh, letting a tremendous amount of environmental damage occur. The Park Service is already seriously behind in its efforts to maintain what it has just in physical infrastructure. And I'm saying, I think there's a lot more money needed to do restoration mitigate invasive species, all sorts of things like that, which are not in that six billion that they already got. And they're going to need a lot more. And the surge is not going to, a, a visitor surge is only going to make that worse.
1: Yeah. And there are, they're all, all, kinds of issues facing the parks. Um, we can't forget climate change and, and all the ills that's bringing to the park system um, and sea level rise and what that's going to do to, you know, coastal units. Um, it's really a, a frightening scenario. We've been talking today with uh, Terrence Young, a Professor Emeritus of Geography at California State Polytech about national park visitation, um, both during the 1918 flu pandemic and during the current coronavirus pandemic. Uh, Professor, it's been great talking with you. You raised some very fascinating points and well, some troubling points as well. It'll be interesting going into the next uh, next year, how the park service is impacted and, and how it responds. Thank you, Kurt, and thank you for having me here. Uh,
2: it's been a pleasure.
0: The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, a training center, a conference center, and a leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks. Each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org.
1: The coronavirus pandemic has upended more than a few hikers' plans for going the distance this year. The distance, of course, in terms of hiking the Appalachian Trail end-to-end, or perhaps the Continental Divide National Scenic Trail, or the Pacific Crest Trail. Hikers were discouraged from setting out on some of these iconic hikes because of the pandemic, and some dropped out rather than continue their trek. Contributing writer Rita Beamish and a friend headed out on the John Muir Trail for nine days in August, and while they carried face masks and practiced social distancing, not everyone they encountered did. Rita joins us today to talk about her experience. Welcome back to The Traveler, Rita.
3: Thank you. nice to be here.
1: So why did you go out during the pandemic?
3: Well, of course, I saw the reference that you make to the Pacific Crest Trail Association, which is not a government agency, but has a friendly relationship with federal government and all of the um, a lot of, uh, Pacific Crest Trail um, organizations and jurisdictions, which that trail goes from Mexico to Canada. And they did discourage uh, hikers from being on the trail because it's uh, they those hikers are so long, they're out there for months, and they have to go in and out of the trail a lot. Um, I did the John Muir Trail, which I did a section of the John Muir Trail, actually, um, about 100 miles of it, which was about a nine-day trek. And I checked in advance um, after initially had my permit, all this news was coming out, and I was wondering if I was going to go. I did check with the, I got my permit from the um, Inyo National Wilderness and I called them to see what the status was, and, and some state parks, some national parks are closed, some state parks are closed. So even while um, some of the national parks were closed at that point, they said that the backcountry was open and the John Muir Trail, which I was gonna hike, was open to hikers. And if you entered, um, if you crossed jurisdictions, for instance, from Yosemite to the John Muir Wilderness to the Inyo Wilderness, that that was also permitted. So by the time I went in August, um, I felt fine about obeying that I was obeying the rules and that it was okay to go, and that we weren't going to be hopping in and out of the trail in different states and you know many different counties to resupply and the like. So I was I couldn't wait to get back there.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Everybody needs a little break from uh, the craziness.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Were there a lot of hikers out there? Was it a normal amount of trail traffic? I know you've, you've hiked the the JMT quite a few times over the years.
3: Yeah. So yeah, it was, it was noticeably low, um, fewer people. Um, usually on the John Muir trail, it's, there are some pretty busy sections and it would be rare to go an hour without seeing a couple of people. I noticed it. So, um, you know, I asked a few people, um, along the way I checked in with a, um, a ranger and some resupply folks and They were saying this is down by about half. And the John Muir Trail does um, intersect with the Pacific Crest Trail, which I mentioned from Mexico to Canada. At um, much of the John Muir Trail's length is intersecting the Pacific Crest Trail. And um, it's because those PCTers were not able to come. A lot of them come from Europe. They come internationally, other states. So that was a big part of the drop off, actually. A lot of Californians were were still up there.
1: Was it difficult to practice social distancing and uh, you know stay safe?
3: You know, when you first go, I come from the Bay Area, and an urban area, and we're, we've gotten very used to obeying the social distancing rules and wearing masks, and it's it's gotten to be rare when you go out and you don't see most people, like the vast majority, masked up. Especially, of course, you have to wear it anytime you go inside any place. So um, we were very comfortable and prepared to, anytime we encountered somebody, we'd pull our mask up and we'd step widely around them. And they would often respond in kind, sometimes not. But it's pretty seductive in the backcountry to just feel like nothing is going to happen to you, that there's sure. no coronavirus around. I wouldn't say we got lax about it, but I could definitely see why people did. Um, and, you know, I think especially younger people they do feel invincible. And uh, some people just, you know, acted like nothing was different, but it was, you know, overall kind of a weird feeling about the whole thing. You know, you, you weren't having your usual kind of, uh, you know, convivial interactions and uh, we We'd talk to people, but we would definitely social distance from them,
1: yeah, yeah. Um, now you um did um make one stop to, to resupply, I believe, at the Vermilion Valley Resort. What was that like?
3: Uh, we were pretty um astonished coming off the trail to see hikers there just you know rubbing shoulders and you know mingling again as if nothing was wrong. So we we definitely kept our distance. And, um, you know, we're usually pretty social. I really enjoy meeting people from all over, you know, the country and the world, but, uh, this was not the year to do that. So we, my friend and I, um, you know, we just sat by ourselves and, you know, kept to ourselves mostly, or kind of talked to people at at a good distance and we got out of there, you know, pretty quickly, actually.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure. Now, these are unusual times for sure. Um, many Americans are out of work. Many are wondering when things will return to normal. Many are wondering if things ever will return to normal. Did these thoughts enter your mind as you hiked or were you able to to distance them and um, really enjoy the scenery and, and the outdoors?
3: Yeah, you know, again, it had to do with if it was just the two of us hiking along by ourselves for a couple hours and life felt normal and great and you're in the outside, you don't have your mask on, the waterfalls are there, the lakes are clear to the bottom, you know, the sun's out, the clouds are incredible, the sky is so blue, you can't, you know, you've never seen a, a sky so blue. Um, that was, yeah, very comfortable and kind of cleansing and, you know, getting rid of the stress of this, this never ending virus. But then again, you know, when, when we came to people, you'd get edgy. You know, are, are they going to wear a mask? Are they going to step aside? There's four guys coming towards me. Are they breathing heavily? So it was always there. It was not always, but it was there at those times whenever you encountered people, and that made it a weird experience. I wouldn't trade it because it's just so great to get up there, and I'm just the biggest fan that ever lived of the John Muir Trail. But um, no, it was it was a like everything else in life. It was strange. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Were politics evident on the trail?
3: Not really. I wouldn't say a lot of people, you know, chit chat politics and ask each other for news and, you know, did Trump do anything crazy today or since I've been up here, that kind of thing. But uh, not really, not, not in, if I think you're asking maybe about attitudes toward masking and stuff, not, not really. Um, Some people were, a few people were a little bit gruff and, you know, kind of eye rolled at us like that we were, you know these uh you know sort of nanny hikers like you know wanting everybody to wear a mask but we we tried to be polite and not impose ourselves on anybody but uh, now nah, I, would, I would say um people take it in stride,
1: yeah, yeah, well, that's good to hear, so do you plan to uh, head back out uh, on the trail if you get another chance this year or is it or was that it?
3: Well, I usually go up there once a year in the high sierras uh if, you know it's high altitude and uh get a train up for it so I'll probably stick to biking on the San Francisco Bay for until next summer, but I'll definitely be going back. I go, I go every year. And uh like I said, I just it was really hard to fathom, you know, having to give up my permit, which they're very hard to get when the uh pandemic hit. And so I was just really happy that when I called uh you know the Ranger station that they get basically gave me the go-ahead and said no if nothing's enforced or, or required up on the trail to accept, uh, obeying, you know, just your normal social distance rules. And, sure. uh, yeah. So, and then, you know, just listening to what our, our health professionals say, and Dr. Tony Fauci and, you know, that masks, even though we're outside, we're having a quick encounter. It's not, we're not you know, having prolonged times of standing or hiking next to people. We still tried to, you know, would do be overly cautious and do what we thought was the right thing.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, Rita, thanks so much for that recounting of your your trip, uh, at least from a COVID uh, standpoint. Um, You've written stories about your adventures on the John Muir Trail in the past. And uh, any listeners who are curious can find them by searching NationalParksTraveler.org for the John Muir Trail. Rita, thanks again. Thanks, Kurt. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Please don't hesitate to recommend topics for future shows. You can reach us at news at nationalparkstraveler.org with your suggestions. And please keep in mind, National Parks Traveler is a nonprofit news organization that greatly depends on its listeners and readers for support. To entice your support, we're offering an American made, double wall insulated, 20 ounce stainless steel water bottle that features a gorgeous shot of Grand Teton National Park for those who can donate $50 or more. You can find a donate button on our homepage. Until next week, this is Kurt Repencheck for National Parks Traveler.
0: The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, These musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Traveler's podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast series is done by Splitbeard Productions. Find out more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.